No sex, please. We're British. I wonder if Alistair Foote would have had quite the same success had he written a play called No Death, Please, We're Human. In many ways, it would resemble our culture quite well. We are a society where unpleasant realities like death become great unmentionables. We just don't like to face the things that make us feel uncomfortable. Who can blame us? But we live with these great big elephants in the room and we do our best to ignore them. To such a culture, the teacher of Ecclesiastes has something to say. For the unpleasant realities of life colour his thinking. He prods at us and he asks us questions that if we're honest, we'd rather he didn't ask us. Is there anything to be gained from life? Does your worldview really leave you with any satisfaction? He asks us to wrestle with these questions that life and death pose to us if we will only listen. So let's pray for listening ears. Heavenly Father, help us to understand what you have to say to us this evening. I pray that you will give me clarity of thought and expression and that through your word you will bring us closer to you. Amen. We're starting a series in Ecclesiastes this evening, which at times is quite a confusing book. There's lots of stuff going on, lots of stuff that is quite tricky. So it might be helpful for us, before jumping in, to see if we can get a bigger picture of what's going on. So do please turn to chapter 12, which is on page 677. Now this last little bit in the book tells us what we can learn from all that has gone on before it. It acts like a little summary or a teaching point. Because the book so far, until 12 verse 9, has been one person speaking to us. But at 12 verse 9, a different voice is heard. And he tells us what we can learn from the book. Look at chapter 12 verse 13. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Now the lesson is taught. Here is what you should learn. Fear God and keep his commandments. At the end of this book, we are pushed and encouraged to fear God. We are sent to the orthodox cornerstone of covenant relationship. This fear of God means faith in God on his own terms. It is a reverence for God's authority and for his mystery, which results in obedience. Fear God. This, the epilogue claims, is what the book points us to. This is what we should learn. Now, this is important because it helps us to stay on track. It, it, uh, it acts like the North Star does for sailors. Because as we're swept along by the speaker's brutal realism, we're kept on course by this one final teaching, fear God. That's what we're aiming at. Sometimes the speaker is going to say stuff that seems totally off the wall and miles away from this orthodox position. But this is an invitation to think deeper on what he has said, to wrestle with what he's said. If you see, our speaker is part of a large wisdom tradition in Israel. He's, and it's a, and he, is in, he is entering into a dialogue with this tradition. And this will be important as we go throughout the book. But remember, this book ends with an encouragement to fear the Lord. That's what we're aiming towards. So, we come back to our passage for today. Flick back to Ecclesiastes 1 on page 668, where we will meet our speaker, who is the voice for almost the entire book. Who is our speaker? Well, look at 1 verse 1. It describes him as the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. 
He has the aura of Solomon about him, doesn't he? The great wise king of Israel. But I don't think we can go so far as to say that this man is Solomon. Rather, what's happening is, in this introduction, we're being made aware of the genre of the book. He's giving us a clue. It is, it is a piece of Israelite wisdom literature. A look at other books, like Proverbs and Song of Solomon, show very similar openings. This is a piece of wisdom literature. And as it's a piece of wisdom literature, we should probably be on the lookout for the sort of things that tend to pop up in this genre. Things like observations on nature, an attempt to find a beneficial, profitful way to live, the use of proverbs in their teaching, and, of course, a focus on the fear of the Lord. Also, our speaker is aligning himself with Solomon. It's kind, of a, it's kind of a backhanded compliment. He tells us that he's one of great wealth, 2 verse 9, and of great wisdom, 1 verse 16. This is a picture of a man of incredible gifting. Now remember, we are aiming towards the fear of the Lord, but our passage today only takes us on the first steps of that. Eventually, we will be encouraged to engage with the world from the basis of the fear of the Lord, as we were singing about earlier. For it is this that enables us to live harmoniously with the way God has made the world, and this is key, and to enjoy it. But in our passage today, we do not move that far. Instead, the teacher is going to grapple with some of the unpleasant realities about life. Verse 2. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, the word that has come to us as meaningless is kind of the, the teacher's signature word throughout the book. He uses it time and time again, and it has an air of futility around it, doesn't it? And, but much like its speaker, this word is quite enigmatic. It's mysterious and slippery and hard to pin down. It has lots of different nuances for the different uh, contexts that it pops up in. But it does, however, speak plainly of that which is unsatisfying, that which is short-lived, Its literal translation would be something like vapour. It's an an airy nothingness, which you can't quite get a hold of and establish value from. The teacher is judging life and he's saying that there is nothing that we can say is an unqualified good. Now, when I was a little boy and my dad used to do fires in the back garden, I used to quite like to chase around after the smoke and try and catch on and try and catch it. I, do, I remember running around grabbing the smoke and the smoke just sifting through my fingers. There was nothing I could do that would allow me to keep hold of this smoke. And this seems to be the kind of idea that the teacher wants to get across to us. In fact, he has, a very, he has his own very similar description of what he means. Just take a look at uh, 1 verse 14, where he describes, he, he, he adds on to meaningless this little phrase, a chasing after the wind. Life for the teacher is something you can't quite grab a hold of. It's something you can't quite establish anything of worth. The point seems to be that in this, there is nothing to be gained because we can't quite get a hold of it, much like catching smoke or chasing the wind. In short, it is meaningless. This is the teacher's verdict on life. But is it true? Well, in our passage today, he's going to turn life over in his hands and examine it from all kinds of different angles and present us with some of the realities about it. And we'd do well to consider 
what he shows us. First, the teacher says there is no satisfaction in what we see. The teacher claims that everything is meaningless, but what does he mean by that word everything? Is God, for example, included in everything? Look down to verse 3. In the words under the sun, at the end of that verse, he establishes some boundaries onto his claim. This is an earthbound perspective. This is about earthly realities as they appear to the teacher. This claim of meaningless is attached to what he can see all around him. He is a realist commenting on what he can observe. But look at that question also in verse 3. What does man gain from all his labour? It is a question typical of the teacher and of the wisdom literature that he's part of. Throughout this passage, he is on the lookout for something which is of value. He is looking for something which is of gain to him. And in the light of what he's already said in verse 2, this seems to be a little bit of a rhetorical question. If everything is meaningless, then what is there to gain? The teacher says that in what he has observed, there is nothing of gain. Now this is a big statement to make, so he'd better defend it, which he does, by pointing to the inconsequence he sees in life all around him. Verse 4. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. Here the teacher points us to the ceaseless making and unmaking of human history. Humans come and go, but the earth remains. Just an impartial backdrop. Politicians are always concerned with what lasting impact they will make, their legacy. I wonder, in their quieter moments, how they would view the impact they are actually able to have. Would they agree with the teacher here? Do you agree with the teacher here? The natural world reflects the inconsequential nature of human life. Look at verse 5. The sun, it rises and it sets, only to rise again. Verse 6, the wind, well, that goes round and round with no obvious goal. Verse 7, the streams run to the sea, but the sea is never full. For all its effort, the world doesn't seem to be getting anywhere. It's as though it's stuck on a treadmill. But this is the world as the teacher sees it. It just doesn't seem to have any purpose to it. Just look at that second part of verse 8. The eye never has enough of seeing. There is nothing that is working to a goal. There is nothing that is satisfying about this. The eye looks on but finds nothing of consequence. The rivers, they run to the sea, but the sea is never full. There is no satisfaction in this. Just a breathless sequence of repetitions in which there is nothing new and nothing worth being remembered. Just a constant flow of lives and events which appear to be purposeless. We're being taught some important stuff about the teacher here. He is a keen observer of the world. He is a realist who isn't going to pull any punches when it comes to presenting what he has seen. He looks at the world, but there is no satisfaction in what he sees. Secondly, there is no satisfaction in what we do. Moving into verse 12, the tone changes a bit. It becomes a narrative. He's telling a story. And the story he tells is is of his own search for something of consequence to do in the world. Look at verse 13. By wisdom, he is going to explore life. 
And looking on to 2 verse 3, if you'll look with me, I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. He is exploring life to see if there is anything worthwhile. And remember, this man has aligned himself with Solomon. He is the great, he is as a great wise king. He's got all the money in the world and all the brains in the world. If anyone can find anything to satisfy in life, then it's him. We see from his sad claim, though, in 13b, that he was not successful. Verse 14. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. It doesn't make happy reading, does it? He has searched life, looking for something that will satisfy, and he has come back empty-handed. Well, that is the summary of his search, but what was the content? The first area he explores for value is in wisdom, verse 17, but he finds nothing of value here. This, too, is a chasing after the wind. Wisdom fails to satisfy the teacher, and we see why in the proverb of verse 18. He tells us it's because the more wisdom he acquired, the more grief it has caused him. See, wisdom is concerned with reality. It's concerned with the way things really are. And the more this teacher is seen of the world, the more he has learned of the world, the more unsatisfying it seems to him to be. Just look again at what he said in verses 3 to 11. Perhaps the phrase ignorance is bliss is something our teacher might agree with here. Anyway, the teacher turns on to hedonism into chapter 2 and verse 1. Maybe he is alive to enjoy himself. Maybe this is what is worthwhile to do. But pleasure seems to suffer from this same meaninglessness. Verse 2, what does it accomplish? What do you gain from it? A bit of a hangover maybe and some vague memories of the evening before. Nothing. So, the teacher turns his efforts to getting pleasure from creative projects. Maybe there is something of value to do in this, verse 4. Look with me. He creates a wonderful, self-sustaining paradise, verses 5 and 6. A private little world of pleasures and luxury, verse 7 and 8. He is trying to build a paradise on earth. Maybe a bit like uh, the building developments in Dubai or the Eden Project down in Cornwall. This is an attempt to build something, something of beauty, something that will please, something of gain. And in the eyes of secular man, the teacher's been very successful, hasn't he? Verse 9, he has reached the top of the pile. He is the greatest and wealthiest man around. In verse 10, there is nothing in the world that is beyond his grasp. But will this be enough to satisfy the hard-to-please teacher? He reminds us in 9b that his wisdom stayed with him. He gently lets us know that he is searching, he is still searching for something that is of consequence. He's still guided by that same question he asked in 1 verse 3. What does man gain from all his labor? Yes, all he has achieved may be very nice, but the mind of wisdom asks, is it of consequence? What does man gain from all his labor? Look with me at 2 verse 11, where the teacher sums up all that he has done and his accomplishments. What has he gained? Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. 
Nothing was gained under the sun. He has all he could want, and yet gained nothing. Tiger Woods is a man with seemingly all the talent and all the money he could want. He he had a seemingly happy home life. Surely he will be content. Well, as has been plastered over our papers over the last few weeks, he was not satisfied, he wanted more. Even the best life under the sun can offer does not seem to satisfy. So we can return back again to that question of 1 verse 3. What does man gain from all his labour under the sun? Nothing is to be gained. Do you see how, that, the, um, how 2 verse 11 answers perfectly the question asked in 1 verse 3? That is not a coincidence. That is the point he is making. The rich, wise man has searched life to find something of value and he's come back empty-handed. So, so far with the teacher, we've seen him look at the, look at the earth and observe that there's no satisfaction in what he sees. Then we saw him go off in a search for satisfaction, a search for something of gain, and he's found no satisfaction in what he did. And now he suggests, thirdly and finally, that there is no satisfaction in the light of death. Verse 13. Wisdom is better than folly. Fine. Fine. Like light is better than darkness, like good is better than bad, wisdom is better than folly. But so what? Verse 14 and 15. The wise man has eyes in his head while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. Yes, wisdom may be better than folly, but what does it matter? What do you gain out of the wisdom? Like the fool, verse 16, the wise man must die. What is there to gain in the light of death? Where is satisfaction in the light of death? Now remember, the teacher is in a conversation, a dialogue with the wisdom tradition that was all around him. This would have been a hugely shocking observation to make to the other, wisdom, to the other teachers of wisdom around him. These people saw their wisdom as being able to answer all problems, being able to answer all the different difficulties that life throws up. But here, the teacher tells them there is a problem that wisdom has no influence over. Death. The reality of death poses a question to all of us. It poses a question to the teacher, and it poses a question to us. What do you gain from all our labour under the sun? You may have amassed more knowledge than anyone else has ever done. You may have a partner who you love and who loves you. You may have everything in the world you could want. Well done, says the teacher. But that's not going to earn you another breath. And when you die, what good will it be to you then? These things may be enjoyable. Don't get get the teacher wrong. And Because it is good to enjoy those gifts. They are given by God and they are there to be enjoyed. The teacher enjoyed his work. Look at 2 verse 10. But he did not allow that enjoyment to cloud the fact that he had not gained anything 
out of it. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. The teacher has observed life and presents to us what he has found. He then leaves us to consider the questions that it puts to us. He leaves us to consider his observations. The teacher has shown us that in his attempt to find satisfaction in the world, he was unsuccessful. He had achieved amazing things, incredible things. Just look at that list again in chapter 2. But in the light of death, he found no satisfaction in them. Yes, it may have been very enjoyable, it may have been very nice, but what did it gain? Well, the teacher doesn't leave us with any answers so much in this passage. He will do, later. He leaves us at this point with questions, and perhaps with a feeling of unease. Possibly, it leaves with a hunger for satisfaction that this world is not answering. And it is when we come to a point of weary acknowledgement that life will not satisfy, that it becomes a matter of greatest joy that God became man, stepped into this world and died so that death may not be the end fact, but only the gateway into the perfect presence of the Lord. Just compare that great gospel truth to Ecclesiastes 1 verse 8. Now a lot of us have moved past the stage where homework comes But this passage does seem to ask it of us. The teacher asks us to reflect more on what he has said. So through the week, do try to come back to this passage and engage with the questions that he is is putting to us. Engage with the observations that he makes on life. Consider the question put to us in 1 verse 3. What does man gain from all his labour? Is there anything that is of consequence? As we reflect on life, do you agree with the teacher? There are good things to enjoy, and it is God's will that we do enjoy them. This is good to do. But can they give you lasting satisfaction? For example, we, we place such high value on romantic love. But even the most perfect human love will be ended by death. Let's not gloss over these unpleasant truths, but face the reality of the world and ask questions. Biblical faith is broad enough to take these issues into account. We can be Christians and have these questions because the God whom we'll be encouraged to fear does give life consequence and provides us with the base from which we can enjoy it. So let's have faith that God is the answer to the questions that life poses The teacher saw the problems of life were not answered by wisdom. Nor will they be answered by our own knowledge. Nor will they be answered by getting onto the university course that you wanted so much. Nor will they be answered by however much you may love your partner. It is the fear of the Lord, which he he will go back and point us to, that is where we begin to find answers to these questions. So do, over the week, take this passage away and reflect on it. And from reflecting on these questions that the passage raises, see if you are driven to a hunger for something more than this life is offering. Perhaps to a gratitude for the infinite nature of our Christian hope 
won for us by Christ. Or maybe to God himself, whose very eternity, when standing in contrast to our mortality, is such a desirable feature, making the redemption offered us in Christ so powerful and so attractive. Or maybe know the joy that the wisdom of God revealed in Christ has shown us how to live and that by dying has adopted us to a life worth living.